amazing. It is amazing that God is doing a great work, I believe, in our nation, in our time. To have hymns like this being written in our day that follows right along the 12 verses that we're going to look at. The book of Ephesians is really almost in a style of magnificence. It's a style of almost we could think of a, a great musical piece that would unfold with the first part of the piece and then all the way through the whole of this letter, the Apostle Paul, he picks up these very themes, almost like musical themes, and he plays them again and again all through this letter. So we want to begin afresh to look at the whole of this letter in one sense of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, 12 verses, and those 12 verses are without any punctuation, as we might say. In the original, they just flow forward. It's almost like he can't stop himself. He's going forward with this wonderful praise of the triune God. So when we come to this, we entitle this message, yes, that which is one glorious Trinitarian salvation. It is a wonderful message that the triune God saves sinners. It's given with such clarity. And yet it plays all the way, not just through the letter that Paul has written that was to be a circular letter to the Ephesians and other churches, but it seems like that's the music that's played all the way through Scripture. One glorious Trinitarian salvation. God, the Father, saves Sinners, God the Son saves sinners. God the Holy Spirit saves sinners. As we come to this passage of Scripture, almost kind of looking at the book or the letter of the Apostle Paul, if you look at verses 3 through 6, here the Father plans salvation. And in a general way, we can see that there in those verses. And then secondly, the Son redeems, verses 7 through 12. And then the Holy Spirit seals. So one God in three persons. Yes, God the Father plans salvation. God the Son redeems sinners such as we are. And God the Holy Spirit applies guarantees, seals our redemption. Yet, there's something I think that's good for us to think about just for a moment. There's what we might call a new gospel. There have been those who have really worked at, they've wanted to have something more more friendly, more acceptable in our culture, something that's a little bit nicer for little children, something that's nicer for the culture in general. And yet there's a great danger in those little changes that churches and preachers have made to make it more acceptable to our nation and our culture. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul has these very serious words when he says, as we have already said, so now I say again, If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned 
or as the ESV has, accursed, strong stuff. Now, I'm someone that I think built into me is I want to please people. I really want to, what can I do to please these people, to this person, whoever, whatever it may be, I want to please people. Yet the Apostle Paul follows this up about pleasing men. He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So we need, as a church, always to be committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when it's not at all hip or popular, or even if it causes persecution that would be great loss and painful. One God in three persons. This passage has, verse 6, has that to the praise of the glory of his grace. There again, verse 12, has that to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 14, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This glorious gospel is that. It is God-pleasing. It is man-centered. No, It is God-centered. It begins with God in its very beginning. And in the middle is the Lord Jesus Christ, the center of it all. And in the end, it's still that Holy Spirit sealing that redemption. So all through, it's God's gospel, his good news. So if we look at this passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 3, we read these words. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The Father plans salvation. This is God's plan. And as we look at it, here we have God is electing, predestinating. He is planning salvation. And as you look at the passage, it says, from before the world began, God's plan, not man's plan. So as we come to this, there's something I believe it's important for us to note down very carefully. And that is, it's a glorious, good plan of God. It's good. We sometimes have people who, they have all kinds of problems with God's plan. They are concerned about how it looks, and they are wanting to fight with his plan. But if you look carefully at this, it's a plan that it says in verse 5 that it's according to his pleasure, according to his will, that he lavished on us. Verse 8 says he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. It's a good plan. God is good. And he brings to us a good plan. Now, I think it's almost uh, something we could kind of laugh at 
we could almost think of as being ridiculous when one says, God knows what he's doing. I mean, it's, it's for us to say, I, he knows what he's doing, and we know so little. Where were we when he formed it all? He is God and God alone. So when we come to this, we need to be those who trust him and his plan. It is good. And we can enjoy that plan. He is good. Secondly, to think of God's plan is not something that's been invented by men. It's been given to us by God. And as you go through this passage, it is God's plan, and we can go all the way back to the Old Testament and read how it was God's plan all along, or as we come to the New Testament. There certainly is, in all the different writers of the New Testament, this emphasis that God has his plan. We can read in Romans chapter 9, And there's such a boldness that God's plan is according to his mercy, not according to our works, not according to anything in us, but it's because he has been merciful that he chose sinners such as we are. Or as we come to Luke, it's not just Paul. I mean, certainly we read earlier in a beautiful way, as we heard the scriptures read to us, that God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things. God has chosen these things that were not to bring forth his glory, that no one would glory in his presence because it's God's plan. But Luke, the physician, turn with me and see this with your own eyes. Acts chapter 13, words that with such Simplicity and yet clarity speak of how those who believe are part of God's plan. Acts 13, we read there in verse 48, these words, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So it's not something that's just the Apostle Paul, but we go to each of the writers and we find God had his plan. Or we come to First and Second Peter, he writes it to the elect of God, those that God had chosen, and how important it is, even as we would read those words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 15, words that are so familiar to us. John 15, 16, we read these words. Jesus speaking. Here we are. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. There is that constant setting forth of God's plan. It's not that we found God, but that God found us. Not that we came up with a plan to how we could search out God, but it's the good news that God's 
Search for us is his great plan in Jesus Christ. Yes, he came. And the reality is not that we can understand it because it's beyond our understanding God's great plan. There is a beauty to this that God the Father has a plan and that plan is wise and that plan is good to save sinners such as we are. It's something that we should rejoice in and celebrate. Isn't God glorious and good? He is the one we are to praise that he has this wonderful plan of salvation. It's good news, and we are to teach that to our children and our children's children. Yes, God is good, and his plan is full of wisdom, and it's beyond our understanding. Second, right in the center of this plan is one who is the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the center of this. We read there in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, the Jews, might be for the praise of his glory. So who is this one? This one who is truly in the beginning with God? This one who was with God? This one who is the second person of the Trinity is central to this great redemption. He is the one who carries it out, who accomplishes redemption, God's great plan. If you go through this passage carefully and you count each time he is named Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, the beloved one, it comes to 15 times he is named through this whole passage of scripture. He is central. He is the one. And we emphasize that, yes, in Adam, we are all condemned. But all those who are in Christ have all the blessings possible in Christ. Holy and blameless, verse 4 says, to be without a mark of sin. And we ask that question, How is it possible that those of us who are real sinners, not just, oh, we did something wrong, or everyone is that. No, we are all sinners through and through. How is it that we can stand before God, who is holy, holy, holy? Verse 7 
speaks of that forgiveness of sins, that pardon. He paid for our sins. He says that he became, yes, the one who rescues, who pays the ransom for many. There's a beauty here as we think of forgiveness. There's an amazing story of World War II. You remember there were six million Jews who were horribly cremated and all the horrors of war criminals and what they did and participated in. If you don't believe in total depravity, start to read about the horror of those crimes. There were some 2,500 that were summoned to Nuremberg, Germany after World War II. Only 199 of them were tried in the court. And all of those different ones who were participants in that, they didn't even want to recognize or own up to their sin. There was one man, only one, among those 199, Albert Speer. This one man, he owned up to his sin. He was a friend of Adolf Hitler. He was an industrialist. He supported the horrible crimes. And when it came that moment, can you be forgiven? His statement was, I will always be seeking forgiveness. Always. I'll never find it. They interviewed the man different times there in the prison. And he said over and over again, I will never be forgiven. I will always be trying to find forgiveness. The last interview, he hung his head down as they asked him the question, will there ever be a moment to be forgiven? With his head down, he says, I don't believe it will ever be possible. Never. I'm without any hope. Do you realize what we have in this gospel? Jesus Christ died in our place. He died for our sins. He lived that life of righteousness, and it's all ours. Yes, good news. That one who is holy and without sin died in my place. My sacrifice paid for my sins. Yes, though our sins are scarlet, yes, they shall be washed away. They shall be white as snow. They, yes, it's good news. Forgiven. And yet we need to, I think, have this to be personal. It's so easy for us to think out there. Somehow or another, Christ died for principles. That he died for propositions. That he died for philosophy that's correct. But the scripture tells us very clearly here in this very passage, that he loved us, that he died for us. Ephesians 2, 4 has that expression, that he, he loved us. And it's not that he loved some kind of philosophical group of people or something of that nature, but he loved us nakedly as persons. As Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me, personal, how important that is. For me, he gave his life. He died for the ungodly. Yes, without hope, without love, 
in Christ we find all that we need. He is very real in that. I know if we are honest with ourselves here this morning, there are times when our love is very down. Our doubts are great about ourselves. I love that hymn of Horatius Bonar. My friend used to quote this to me. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same. No change Jehovah knows. I change. He changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. It's not found in ourselves. It's in him that we have that I change not. Therefore, you're not consumed. Malachi 3.6, that gospel promise. It's good news. Verse 5 of our passage, in love, he predestined us to be what? Family. Family. Now, there's a translation thing there that sometimes people, when they see sons, as in our passage, they want to say immediately, that can be translated sons and daughters. And they're right. From the Greek, that very thing can be translated sons and daughters. It includes both men and women. It's not just exclusive. But I think there's something here that's important. We are, yes, with all the legal rights of a son, of a firstborn, because we're in Christ, in that one who is the firstborn, that one who is with all the legal rights in Christ, we have all that standing with God in his family. We are in Jesus Christ. We have all the legal rights. Now let me tell you a very personal story. As a little girl born in Cusco, Peru, she was abandoned. She, at four years old, weighed about 18 pounds, didn't want to eat because her teeth were rotten. She didn't talk. She just made some noises. How would that little girl ever be adopted into a family in Mesa, Arizona? There has to be some legal work that goes on. There has to be a lot of paperwork and stuff. But you know how it really happens? One has to travel from Mesa, Arizona to Lima, Peru. And from Lima, Peru, you have to travel to what is the capital of the Inca Empire. The old Inca Empire was still with about 11 million Quechua-speaking people in the whole of these different nations. And this little girl, four years old, has got to have someone who's going to go and identify with her. This family went there. They identified with her, spent time, days, weeks, right there in Cusco. It's 11,152 feet. It's beyond what we can, if we were all transported there, we'd need a few days just to breathe right again. But they went into her world. They identified with her. Though she could even speak with them, 
There was that identity that had to take place, that time with her, that being with her, loving her, caring for her. Two brothers and a sister went there to identify with her. She's now legally, fully part of their family. She speaks English and Spanish, and she is part of that family. We have an elder brother who came here and identified with us. He came and he, yes, adopted us. We are those who have been adopted by the Father through Jesus Christ. That one who was with the Father. That one who, yes, was God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that's how we're adopted into the family, through that firstborn son, Jesus Christ. We have that wonderful, wonderful privilege of being family of God, with all the legal standings fully members. But as we look at this passage, certainly verses 13 and 14 are very important. We read there these words, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his Grace. Paul can't stop. He just flows on. There's an enjoyment that he has to speak of this wonderful salvation. It's one that the Holy Spirit applies. Yes, he guarantees, he seals this salvation. Now, I think it's important for us to understand this work of the triune God. It's not that one just does this and one just does this and the other one does this and they're all in three different departments and separated. As we began this wonderful sentence, this glorious sentence with verse 3, it tells us in a wonderful way that we have all the spiritual blessings, not just that they're something for our soul, but that the Holy Spirit is at work in all the areas of salvation. He's not separated from God the Father and the Son. There's a sense in which he is present in all that is happening. Dead in sins and trespasses, he gives life. Separate from God, he gives that marriage to Jesus Christ that unites us and reconciles us. There is this work of the Spirit of God when we are without faith. He gives us the gift to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. It's good news all the way through that it's the Father planning salvation, the Son, yes, applying or in a wonderful way redeeming sinners such as we are and then the Holy Spirit applying that salvation. Wow. It's the triune God working together to bring us salvation. So what is that seal? What is that seal of the Holy Spirit? Is it 
you know, something like, oh, I think uh, maybe some of you remembering right now, or maybe you saw the pictures in these days with Gorbachev dying, and you remember, uh, at least I remember back those years when uh, Gorbachev was in the news constantly and all that was going on in relation to the Soviet Union, there were those who said, ah, look, the mark on his head must be the mark of the beast or something, this seal that's there. Well, there were strange kind of comments, and yet the reality is so many Christians think even this seal is something external. Oh, here is that work of God that seals us in Christ. Yes, it has to do with that very fruit of the Spirit. It has to do with knowing the Lord. As we read those wonderful words of how that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that marks a Christian. There's something wonderful there that everyone who is a Christian has the Spirit of God within them. It's real. He gives this new life that we walk in newness of life. Changed. The old has gone. The new has come. It's a process, but it's real. It's there. Not some kind of external mark, but a internal reality sealed by the Spirit of God. It causes us to sing the song of the redeemed, some out of every tribe and nation and people and language. Yes, we are those who sing. We enter in to praising him. It's not a matter of what language we sing in, Quechua or or English or or German, or Polish, or Apache. No, it's that we praise him because we have been redeemed out of all the different peoples of the earth to sing praise to him. We talk in these days a bit about the, the five men that gave their lives because our ladies read through through gates of splendor. And those five men, Roger Yodirian and and Ed McCulley, and Pete Fleming, and and Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott. Why did they give their lives? Because they believed there was a people purchased from that tribe, the gospel to go to them. Or in these days, I've been reading afresh the biographies, actually, of of, uh, John G. Payton. Only difference between John Payton and John Patton are one has two T's and one only one T. John Payton was a missionary to the South Seas. Amazing. He marries his young wife. She's 18. They leave the very, uh, very quickly after that. And by the time they arrive, uh, very shortly, she dies. Their first baby dies. They didn't even have the things unloaded yet. And all that went on and what cost through the years to take the gospel to those cannibals. I wrote this down. One of those who, who spoke later on, speaking of how they persecuted and tried to destroy the missionaries, John G. Payton. We slew or drove them all away. We plundered their houses and robbed them. 
Had we been so treated, nothing would have made us return. But they came back. They came back to tell us of their Jehovah God and his son, Jesus. If their God makes them do all that, we may well worship him too. This is a glorious gospel that we have. It is that which really does change us and changes people. Very quickly, I would like to speak of five lessons from this wonderful passage of Scripture. And the first one is certainly right before us, that salvation is of the Lord the Father, planning that salvation, the Son redeeming sinners such as we are, and the Holy Spirit sealing us, guaranteeing that salvation. We are to rejoice in that we have such a great salvation, that God saves sinners. It's a magnificent, marvelous gospel that we have. God's great plan. Secondly, the seal, the mark, is not our works, our deadly doings, as one hymn has it. We need to realize it's not what we have done, but it's what he has done. That is the great salvation that we have. We often talk about poema publications, and they take that word from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, that we are his poema. We are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. It's not what we have done, but what he has done. So that that's not anything but the work of Christ. It's not whether we are one color or another, black or white, but it's what we are in Christ that makes all the difference. That's where the blessings really are. Now, the old gospel does certain things. It glorifies the triune God. It causes us to, yes, see the wonder and awe of this salvation. The new gospel does not produce a deep humility. And this old gospel produces this deep humility. It actually does something that the gospel is so powerful to do that, you know, whenever there's a problem, we, as sinners that we are, we can say, that person's at fault, or I have ten good excuses why that happened, and it's not really my fault. I was a victim in this, and really, you don't understand how difficult my circumstances are, and hey, we've got more blame or excuses or things to pass around. Anyone here know anything about that? Romans chapter 3, verse 19 speaks of how that the whole world would be silenced and become guilty before God. That means we come to the place where, in language very direct, we shut up. We have no more excuses, no more blame to pass around. We stop talking. It's God's grace. We know that 
there's no works of mine that would bring me into God's presence and take away my sin. It's Christ and Christ alone. It humbles us. But at the same time, it does something that only the gospel can really do. And that's, it gives us great confidence. Humbles us. Why? Well, we no longer have confidence in our own health, our own appearance, our own works, our own stuff, whatever it may be. But we have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we have that, uh, oh, I think from Proverbs, maybe someone could help me look it up here. It speaks of how, uh, uh, how does it go? A cord of three strands is difficult to break. But let me say this to you. That wonderful triune God, the Father planning salvation, the Son redeeming sinners, the Holy Spirit sealing sinners such as we are, guaranteeing our salvation. There's nothing, nothing, nothing that can ever fail in that. The triune God cannot be broken. His work will be accomplished. Sinners such as we are are saved in Jesus Christ. The Father will never fail. The Son will never fail. The Holy Spirit will never fail. We have redemption guaranteed. And then finally, it produces gratitude. We're going to sing this hymn when this passing world is done. This hymn written by Robert Murray McShane. Robert Murray McShane pastored there in in Dundee, Scotland. He went to Israel not shortly before he died and had an uh, exploratory trip how they could send the gospel to the Jewish people, Hebrew-speaking people in that land. He came back and there had been something of tremendous revival. The missionary later that went to China, Robert uh, William Chalmers Burns, had been in his pulpit during his absence. McShane wrote a number of hymns. He died at 30 years. This hymn that we're going to sing, I'd like for you to look in your, your uh, bulletin there and find it and follow along and think of how we are to be those who are to be full of gratitude for so great a salvation. McShane's hymn, When this passing world is done, when it's sunk young glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking over life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and the hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before the throne, Dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When the praise of heaven I hear, loud as thunders to my ear. 
loud as many waters noise, sweet as harps melodious voice. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. And I would ask that we all join in saying this together before this last stanza, if we could as one voice. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Father, we do ask that you would work in our hearts in such a way that, O oh Lord, that we not only confess our sins and forsake our sins, but also learn what it is to rejoice in so great a salvation and to realize how much we have in Jesus Christ. That even on our worst day, of all the people on the face of the earth, we are the most blessed. We have been forgiven of all our sins. We have been adopted because our elder brother came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I am thankful, Lord, that he has accomplished that great work. Father, we give you thanks and ask, Lord, that you would touch our hearts afresh as we sing this hymn at how much we owe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.